Amen. Thank you, Justin, and thank you, worship team. Uh, as we prepare uh, for uh, this morning, uh, I just want to say that at the end of the sermon, as a part of our response, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper or communion together uh, as a church. And if you're a believer in here, then uh, you are invited to participate in observance of the Lord's Supper with us uh, when Jesus uh, spent his last meal with his disciples, uh, they ate of the bread in remembrance of the body of Jesus, and they drank of the cup in remembrance of the blood of Jesus poured out uh, for us. And so today we continue that ordinance uh, as uh, the church. And so again, if you're a believer, then we invite you to participate in that as a part of our response uh, to God's word and uh, to the gospel uh, this morning. If you're visiting with us, uh, then I just want to say to you, if you're not comfortable taking communion yet, if you're not a believer, then we understand that. Uh, and we invite you to just enter into time of silence during that. And uh, we do want to say to you, however, that we're glad you're here. Uh, and maybe you're watching online for the first time. And uh, we would love to know who you are. Uh, I would encourage you to text the word CONNECT uh, to the number that you see on the screen. And one of our team members will follow up with you this week. Or you can stop by one of the welcome tables on your way off campus this morning. Uh, if you're new and you want to know more about who we are as a church or you have questions about our church, I would encourage you to uh, join us for Discover Bayshore, which takes place today following the 11 o'clock service. So that'll be at about 12.15 in our fellowship hall. You can ask any of our uh, Connect team uh, for directions and they'd be healthy, happy to help you get there. I uh, also want to invite everyone back this evening for our prayer night slash town hall. Tonight, each of our ministry leadership teams are going to be giving an update and report as to what's going on in their specific area of ministry. Uh, they'll open the floor up for any questions that people might have about uh, topics related to their team, and then we'll pray uh, for each of those teams, and uh, we'll hear a few other business updates tonight, and we'll conclude uh, with the time of fellowship uh, immediately following that. So again, and that's tonight um, at 5 o'clock. We'd love for you to be here with us. I, I do want to celebrate that last Sunday on our campus, we had the highest number of people uh, on campus in the history of the church aside from a special Sunday. And last Sunday, we had 205 children on campus, fifth grade and below. Uh, praise God for that. And... I hope we are aware of the opportunity that lies before us as a church. And when we think about those numbers of people, uh, a church cannot be um, faithful to God and merely think about numbers of people. They must think about what kind of people are we and what kind of disciples are we making? And so today, uh, we conclude our series, New Year's Same Truth, by looking at Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. And this last uh, scripture uh, in this series, as we've walked through Matthew 8, excuse me, Mark 8, 9, and 10, um, really is something that I think captures a lot of what has been uh, taught and is emphasized in these passages of scripture and really is something that is very important for us as believers and as a church family. Uh, a phrase I've heard referred to throughout um, my studies and throughout uh, just being a pastor and interacting and even reading you know, people who are into sociology is the Christian subculture. 
the Christian subculture. The Christian subculture is this idea that evangelicals specifically have created or create subcultures where we try to differentiate ourselves from the world. And I would say that there is some good and some bad to this. It's bad because uh, often subculture are really, is just really created by man-made standards, not God-made standards that make us feel better about ourselves, uh, but really aren't concerned with what God wants. And so we say, hey, we're going to have a sports league where we don't keep score or something like that, uh, or wear t-shirts with, you know, anyway, it doesn't matter. I don't need to go there. So, so there's some bad to it, but I would also say there's some good to it. Because as believers, we should not be taking our cues from culture. So if we're going to be defined as different when it comes to certain things, that's a good thing. And it's a God-honoring thing. And an area where we need to be sure to look different than the culture is how our culture views status and power and influence you see, we live in a culture where to be a servant is to be of less worth. But as we've looked at chapters 9 and 10 in Mark, we see Jesus redefining and redeeming and reclaiming what it means to be great. We see Jesus showing us what status really means and the life of a Christian being one of sacrifice and of humility. However, across our nation, and probably across other nations, but I live in this nation, we see the church plagued by, or at least characterized by what has been called consumer Christianity. That's the idea that instead of people looking at a church and saying, what does God want, and what can I do for this group of people, and how can we serve the community? People look at a church and say, what can it do for me? What can it give me? And even though churches emphasize serving all the time, the 2080 rule still exists. That's the idea that 20% of the church give 80% of the money and do 80% of the work. And that most people who serve the church serve the church on their terms and not according to what the needs are in their church or in their community. And I would say that this issue, the giving issue, the serving issue, is almost always just the surface of an issue that lies in the heart of the people that call that church theirs. And my hopes for today, as we conclude this series and this time in these script passages of Scripture, is that we will see what it means to be a servant and that each of us will radically devote our lives, taking our cues not from our culture, but from Christ who gave his life for us. So I'll read now Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John come up to Jesus and ask him, teacher, or tell him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, which is a very loaded statement. It's like at my house when my children or my wife say, will you do me a favor? And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Which is better than me, because I usually say, or something like that, waiting for their, their question. It depends on what the favor is. And they ask this favor of Jesus, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one on your left, in your glory. These are positions of prominence. These are the positions of first and second in prominence. These are places of honor. These are places of status. These are places of power. If you've ever seen see the president giving a speech or talking on TV, usually the person to the right and the left of our president or any ruler carries with them some degree of power and influence and status. At a wedding, the person who's immediately to the side of the bride and the groom are positions of honor. And so James and John are thinking, all right, we know you're gonna be on the throne and every powerful person has their people. We're the ones who've been closest to you because Peter, James, and John have been following more closely with Jesus than the other disciples. And Peter isn't involved here, but you know these are brothers, so they're sticking together. And Peter's personality, they're probably thinking he's gonna ask if we don't ask, so we need to ask this. So, hey, Jesus, by the way, just so you know, we're just thinking, trying to get ahead of the game here with our seats. And we're not sure what all you mean by this kingdom thing, but we've got enough of an understanding that you're gonna sit on the throne of your father David and that your kingdom will never end. And so we're just wondering, we're just talking about it amongst ourselves. There's no reason for us not to bring it up to you now. Can we have the seats, one on your right and one on your left in your glory? Matthew tells us that their mother was leading the charge, which for Niceville moms, there's no surprise that a mama would try to get her children a special seat. She says, my boys would like a nice seat, Jesus. They're good boys. And, and their mom is actually Salome, the aunt of Jesus. And Jesus responds to them and says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, when he uses the word cup, he's, he's using something to the, that to them would be symbolic of destiny. To drink a cup meant this was my fate. And when he says baptism, that word literally means to immerse. And so he's saying, you know, you can't be baptized with what I'm gonna be baptized or drink the cup I'm gonna drink. And he's talking about suffering. And he's saying, you don't really understand what you're asking. And so they say to him, we are able. And Jesus says to them, 
The cup I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So they may not have understood what they are asking to do, but they do double down on their commitment to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. And Jesus affirms that they will. And they will suffer. James is murdered according to Acts chapter 1, verse 22. And we know at least that John was beaten and exiled to the island of Patmos. But then he says, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And I want you to take note of what Jesus says to them. They ask for these positions of prominence. And Jesus says, I can promise you suffering, but I cannot promise you positions. And so at this point, I want to begin asking some questions for reflection as we think about this text today. The first question is this. If you were promised suffering but not status, would you still serve Jesus? If you were promised heaven, but no promise of being on the right hand or the left hand, nothing that you think of when you think of power and influence, but you are guaranteed to suffer in this life, would you still suffer, serve Jesus? This is the opposite of how I typically hear people talk about the Christian life. I hear a lot of people talk about Christianity and they talk about how they are going to get positions not just in heaven but in this life and there could be suffering if we mess up. And the reason people think that Christianity is about getting these positions we want in life but not necessarily about suffering is because they don't read the Bible. And Mark says that the conversation moves from James and John to the other disciples. When the 10 heard it, he says, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were indignant, which means they were displeased or sore. A modern translation would be that they were salty. And they were salty, not because of what they asked, but because they asked the question. You see, because the disciples, if we follow the disciples, they also wanted status and recognition and influence and power. And so they want the right hand and the left hand of Jesus, and yet these jokers already ask about it. And so they're gaining an advantage on them, or maybe they're ruining it for everybody. And what we see in the life of the disciples who are following Jesus is this temptation to look to the way the world views status and power, and even the church views status and power, and to mix that in with their following Jesus. And so they ask questions like, can we have these positions? And what Jesus does is Jesus says, I can't promise you any of that. And then he teaches them, and he teaches us how to live. He calls them and says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Much like today, rulers were all about power and getting their way. You see, status matters in this world. I would say that in this world, status is often everything. 
And maybe a more modern way of saying this is that image is everything. The image matters. I've noticed that our, our desired image is typically the root of all other issues in our life. And we can talk about other things. We could talk about marriage. We could talk about kids. We could talk about money. We could talk about serving God. We could talk about all kinds of things. But as long as we have this desired image and we don't deal with the fact that we are driven by this desired image, then we are not dealing with the root of the issue. I've shared before that I I spent two years as a student pastor. When I was a student pastor, we took our students to camp. And the middle school boys at camp were so busy sleeping, eating, doing activities, um, trying to flirt with girls, going to everything, that they didn't take showers. And they smelled like B.O., And so their theory was, let's just spray ourselves down with Axe body spray. And so they sprayed themselves down with Axe body spray and therefore smelled like Axe body spray and BO. And a lot of people are not dealing with the root of their heart and that they are driven by an image they want to have, an image they want to attain, and they smell like sin and maybe some churchy things and some moral things, but they're still not dealing with the root of the issue. And so my second question for reflection this morning is this. What desired status or image drives you? What desired status or image drives you. Maybe it's to be this busy professional. You want to be successful. You want to be on it. You want to have it together. You want the rewards and the recognition, and you want people to see you as such. Maybe you want to be that unbreakable, rough soldier. You want people to see that you're not scared of anything, that you are tough, that you are a man's man, you are a hero. Maybe you want to be that mom who runs a tight ship and has her family as a well-oiled machine and you have it together. Maybe you don't like all that and you wanna be the free spirit, you wanna be the adventurer, you wanna be the person who goes places. And what I've noticed is that a concern for an image is at the root of everything a lot of people do. It affects everything in their lives. And if you don't deal with the fact that you're driven by an image, and yet you begin to go to church, this will carry over into Christianity. And so a lot of people then become driven, not by Christ, but by being the super involved Christian. The person who does everything and can be counted on. By being a leader, by being moral, holier than thou, if you will, by being the compassionate person, by being excited all the time about God, that we're too Baptist, so there's not many of you here that are like that, or by just being that Christian family that has it together. Now, there's nothing 
altogether wrong with all these things that I talked about. And some of all, or all of them should matter to us. But if trying to gain and maintain that image, whatever that might be for you, is at the core of who you are, it results in a lack of fully grasping the gospel. That's the message of Jesus. And I believe that there are two ways that valuing image, valuing status, valuing influence too much causes us to misunderstand the gospel. One is this. There are people who cannot ever attain the image they desire. And so they live a life feeling worth less than they are. Constantly comparing themselves who have it better off than they do in terms of that image. And this is a lie. It is not the gospel that we are worthless because we cannot maintain or attain the image we desire. The other way that it causes us to misunderstand the gospel is that people compare themselves to others and think they do have that image or have attained that image or maintained that image more than others. And so they begin to feel like they are worth more than others because of that, which is a lie. That is not the gospel. And so what this leads to is it leads to us being transactional. It leads to us seeing people not for who they are in Christ, but what they can give us in this world and how they can help us to get the image we want to be. Billy Graham, who's one of the most uh, influential American Christians who ever lived, in one of his writings said that he was intoxicated by the power of the Oval Office. He had the opportunity to be in the uh, presidents, uh, close to many of our presidents over the uh, 20th century, and he said he found himself not saying things that God would want him to say at risk of losing the influence that he had. And we all are tempted to look at status and image and influence and let that drive us more than Christ. But Jesus says in verse 43, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Great, megas, Large, loud, significant. First, that's rank. He says, if you want to be great, and you want to be first, become a servant. Become a slave. Jesus calls those who want to be great to be servants. And that's the goal for the Christian. Matthew 25, I've heard so many people say this, that they want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. A hired servant, which is the language that's being used here, was to care for, protect, and make better the lives of those they served. Care for, protect, and make lives the better, make the, the lives better of those you serve. That's how we are to view the people we serve. Who do we serve? Well, Jesus says, love my neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself is the greatest commandment, along with loving God. Well, who is my neighbor? Jesus asked that question, tells us the story of the good Samaritan who gave his enemy what he would want to happen to him. And I realize you might think, well, specifically or generally, people are difficult or they don't deserve it or 
I want more. I, I, I don't want to live my life that way. And I understand. And I began to feel, begin to feel that way often. So when we feel like it's too difficult and we feel like we're missing out and we feel like people don't deserve it, where do we look? Do we look to the people in our community or around us who are closer to the status and image we want? Do we look to television or social media and influencers? Do we look to books that teach us about how to have a happy life in some way? There might be some value in some all of these things, but as the Christian, we first and foremost look to Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man. If you think that you're at a place where you don't have to humble yourself to put others before yourself and to serve people, who do you think you are? Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And gave his life, that word is psyche, soul, it's not just his body, he gave himself. His identity on earth was given up to the service of others to become a ransom for many. And as a Christian, I realize I am one of those many. And that is now my identity, is I have been served by the Son of Man so that I could be purchased, I could be released from sin. So I'll ask this third question for reflection. Is your identity in denying yourself to build up others like Christ or denying others to build yourself up? Is your identity in denying yourself to build up others or denying others to build yourself up? How do you look at people as primarily what can I do for them for the glory of God or primarily what can they do for me for the glory of me? Your spouse, this is how you view him or her. Your children, this is how you view them. Your church, this is how you view us. In society, and I understand that sometimes they're difficult, and sometimes they don't deserve it, and sometimes you feel like you're missing out. But I'll tell you what someone told me when I was a new Christian, and talking about something being tough, he was young too, and he looked at me and he said, Jesus died, bro. And it stuck with me ever since then. Then when I began to have a pity party, Jesus died for me. That's how committed he was to this idea. And I must always think of that and remember that. 
In the song Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen, one of the lines are, or is, love is not a victory march. It is a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Sometimes love, and often love, is service and sacrifice and denial of self, but a praise of God in the midst of that. And that's where our identity on earth should be. So as we begin to bring this home, let me give you four quick questions for response. As we respond to this text, these are four questions for you and for I. The first is whose kingdom will you serve? Whose kingdom will you serve? Jesus is going to be on the throne. That's why James and John are asking this question. And so we start by acknowledging that he is on the throne and then that's why we serve him. And I would ask you, is that how you're living your life? And I love you, but if not, then you're the Lord of your life. You're the king of your life. And I'll let you know this, there's only one kingdom that's actually legit and it's his. And if you believe otherwise, you are drunk off of the power and status and image of this world. And you need to be sober and realize that there is one king and one kingdom that lasts forever. The second question for response is this, whose needs will you meet? So if you are serving the king, then what are you doing? Whose needs will you meet? Who in your home? Who in your church family? Who in your community? Whose needs are you meeting? And will you meet? I'll give you two things on this. Number one is do something. Do something. In a world that preaches idealism, don't buy that lie and sit on the bench waiting for the perfect opportunity. Do something. And the second thing I would say is do things you don't want to do. I think I, I would be pretty safe saying that anywhere, but specifically in a culture where we are told always follow your heart and do the things that make you happy, here's what I would say to you. Occasionally just say there's a need and I'm gonna do it even if I don't wanna do it. And watch what God does in your heart. So whose needs are you gonna, will you meet? Number three, who can help you discover God's gifting and calling on your life? Who is it that can help you discover how God has wired you and what he has gifted you to do and called you to do so that you can do them. I think it begins with realizing whose kingdom you serve, being willing to serve, and I will just say this, the way that people find out how their passions align with the needs of their community and their church and the glory of God is by starting somewhere. You're never gonna get there by just sitting around and waiting for the perfect opportunity to start somewhere and then be around people who you say, you know what, they are serving the Lord and they can help me realize what God is calling me to do. You know, it's interesting that Mark puts this account right here after he notes Jesus sharing about his death that was coming, showing that sometimes we don't focus on the suffering of Christ but our own gain. I mean, Jesus just got done explaining that he's gonna die and that he's gonna rise and then here we have the disciples saying, okay, so where are we gonna be? 
And I think it's because we, we take our perspective off what true greatness is. And so that would be my last question for response is this. How will you measure greatness? How will you measure greatness? Jesus reclaims and redeems the pursuit of greatness. What is greatness? Plato captures the idea of the world when he says, how can anyone be happy when he is the slave of anyone else at all? And Jesus says, if you wanna be great, become a servant. Greatness is not measured by the number of people who serve you, but by the number of people you serve. Greatness is not measured by the number of people who serve you, but by the number of people you serve. I used to think of greatness as people that had influence, that were recognized, that were powerful. And now I think of greatness as people who just serve the Lord without ever any concern for whether they're recognized or not. And I'm telling you that if you're a part of this church, you are surrounded by a lot of these people. I think of Keith Cox. Keith just moved temporarily, but Keith has faithfully served in our children's ministry with the younger kids for decades without hardly ever getting recognized for that service. He's done it through multiple programs with a great attitude. I think of Joe Nagel, who continues to serve and has served for decades and still tells our young children's minister, put me where you need me. I think of Sandy Schlechter, who's always involved in serving in our hospitality area, who would do more if there weren't health concerns, but is so faithful over the years in the ways that she serves. I think of Barbara Jones, one of our senior ladies who she's constantly willing to serve, has even served as a buddy to some of our special needs children with a glad heart. I think of Freddie Allen, who I call the church mouse because he lives here. He's always here, always seeking to see what people need and serve other people. I think of Linda Hayes, who even as she's had uh, health challenges, serves in our B-School, volunteers in our B-School uh, just about every single week and is always out front greeting people. Maydell Bass, who serves the ladies of the pavilion and has served this community in many ways and who her presence there changes them. Jack Thomas, who, and among many others, who serve in our benevolent ministry, not just handing out resources, but seeks to build relationships with people and invite them to church and looks out for them. Bill Wise, who greets people with a friendly heart at the boat, who did that alongside his wife and even after losing his wife, continues to be faithful in service to the Lord. Robert and Joy Love, who people don't know this, but they help with every baptism we have and they've been doing that since before I was born. And I could go on and on of the many senior adults who've been serving in this church for longer than I've been alive without hardly ever being recognized. And there are people in, our, in, in, in this group that are in the thick of it. We celebrate Tim Stevens' retirement. I know Tim's in here this upcoming uh, weekend and uh, had a great military career. But along the way, he's served in his churches that he's been a part of and in his community, he and his wife, just seeking to add value to wherever they go. So congratulations on your great career, but thanks most of all for being like Christ and how you live. 
Dennis Ely, my friend who coaches, coached three teams for another church, three basketball teams for another church's league, is involved in many community organizations, anywhere he goes is trying to serve people. Kelly Hefner, who's a mom, and yet yesterday she's up here on all day Saturday helping get ready for the event that night for uh, the other families. April Jensen, who uh, is, serves twice uh, a week in our children's ministry. Brad Ellis, who's often in the booth and serving in student ministry and uh, serves in other ways in our community. Lindy Hayes, who serves in children's ministry, sings, uh, does, just seeks to add value to people constantly. Robin Lewis, who's the person that we can always count on when uh, we don't have our staff here for our children's ministry to take the lead. Aaron Jackson, who serves in our student ministry, teaches a life group. And these people are all in the midst, in the thick of raising kids and, and trying to live their lives and work their careers. There's so many, I could go on and on. And I, I just wanna say that I think the disciples are in this place in their spiritual growth, where a lot of us hit, where they wanna go deeper with Jesus. And a lot of the reason that we've had growth as a church is because God is just stirring people's hearts to grow deeper in the word and Bible study and those kind of things. But I just wanna say this. If going deeper doesn't result in service, you are confused about what deeper means. Because if we're becoming more like Christ, then we're becoming servants. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So don't serve your interest in such a way that you miss the one who really serves your interest. Don't be so committed to yourself that you can't look to Jesus because of the things you're not willing to let go of and the things you're not willing to do and miss Jesus and what he has done for you. And when you understand that he has given his life as a ransom for many and you are one of the many, there is something that changes and transforms about you and how you view people. And so as we prepare to respond by taking communion, may that be where our eyes are. I want to read Isaiah chapter 53 as we move into a time of response. Isaiah chapter 53 is a prophecy written hundreds of years ago before Jesus, but that places our eyes where they should be. Isaiah 53 says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. When God instructed the Israelites to build the tabernacle, and the Holy of Holies was the mercy seat, where the high, the high priest would sacrifice as an atonement for the sins of his people. And on the sides of the mercy seat, God instructed them to, to build, construct these incredible angelic beings. And he told them to make their eyes face downward towards the mercy seat. So even the greatest creatures that we could think of need to look at mercy before they look at one another. And as Christians, we understand what that fully means. Christ was the fulfillment of the mercy seat. He was who Isaiah 53 says, bore our transgressions. And we must look at everyone through the lens of the mercy of Christ on the cross. And so that's what we do now as we respond to his word and worship. I'm gonna invite our deacons to come forward and to, to prepare to distribute the elements of the Lord's Supper. You'll receive a packet like this. When you receive that packet, if you would hold on to it, and we will take the elements of communion together as the body of Christ. Let me pray for us as we enter this time. God, may we examine our hearts and ask, are we truly servants of Christ? Do we truly realize what's been paid for us? And are we living lives in response? And God, if there's any way that we seek to elevate ourselves instead of elevating you and elevate others, may you show us and may we confess those sins to you now as we prepare and focus our hearts and our minds on your life that was given as a ransom for many. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.